This is the Theology Matters podcast, and I'm Josh Malden. I'm here today with Marsha Pally, who is a professor at New York University, as well as a guest professor at Humboldt University in Berlin. She's also the author of a number of books, including Commonwealth and Covenant. And she's a member at CTI, participating in our research workshop on religion and economic inequality in 2019-2020. Welcome to the podcast, Marsha. Wonderful to be with you. Just going right uh, to the main topic, Marcia, why don't you talk about the, pro- the project you worked on at CTI this past year? The theme of, of all of us fellows at CTI for 2019-20 was the topic of religion and inequality. And coming from the theological rather than the economic perspective, I was interested in how do you make or how do we make an economics, an economic system that would lead to human flourishing and perhaps uh, reduce some of the disadvantages and damage of severe inequality. I began from the standpoint of needing to know what kind of creature human beings are in order to figure out what kind of economics would lead to human flourishing. So if you want to set up an economics for turtles, you need to know what kind of creature a turtle is. So I brought the work that I had done in Commonwealth and Covenant on humanity as a relational species to this work on economics. And I was very glad to be able to speak to economists and people who were doing economic research um, to try to use my uh, framework of relationality to think about how we should set up an economics. So what do I mean by uh, relationality or that human beings are a relational species? I don't mean that we only have relationships, which of course we do, but that's that's not all of what I mean. I mean that each one of us becomes who she is through our networks of relationships and our layers of relationships beginning with those nearby, but extending out in our paths of global connectedness. There's there's no infant that grows up alone. Isolated adults quickly become prone to both emotional and physical disorders, including deaths of despair, addiction, suicide, and so on. We are dependent and we develop and become who we are through our proximate relations but also those that extend out because a child's health care, nutrition, educational opportunities, stresses, aren't necessarily determined by those who are nearby. Similarly, the stresses, opportunities, nutrition, health care, employment, and so on, of the child's caretakers are also influenced by those not necessarily nearby. So we develop foundationally through networks and layers of relationships. This suggests to me that if we are a relational species, we really need to see and see to, attend to those relationships if humanity is to flourish. In my previous work, I had looked at relationality through uh, Christian and Jewish perspectives, focusing on Trinity in the Christian perspective and covenant in the Jewish perspective. 
And I had then moved on to looking at relationality from the perspective of evolutionary biology and psychology. And I wanted to see what that could tell us about economics. In a moment, I want to talk to you about the, the pandemic. And, you know, you're in New York City. You've just been in the city through uh, a number of months of, of lockdown. I know you're thinking through all of your ideas in the midst of, of this current crisis. But, and we'll get to that in a moment. Um, but even before that, given all this rich tableau that you've laid out for us, when you're talking to people about kind of the very sort of current issue of economic inequality, how do you bring these insights to bear on that in conversations just with people in, in kind of everyday conversation? If we are a relational species, our flourishing is going to proceed if we attend to that relationality and build structures that allow that relationality to work for us and with us. We have a problem since the advent of ag agriculture, which brought many good things, but it also brought one or two unproductive things. For example, it, it brought the um, de degradation of soil uh, from having one crop planted over and over again in the same place, and for a long time led to diminished nutrition. But what I was looking at was not so much the disadvantage of the soil, but it brought something very new to humanity, regular surpluses. And with regular surpluses came the incentive to grab by force what your neighbor or your neighboring tribe had. And we see in the Mesopotamian areas in uh, Mediterranean and North African regions, a radical and severe increase in aggression, not only between groups with the advent of agriculture, but within the group. We see for the first time hierarchy, severe hierarchies, and the systemic abuse of domestic populations. We should learn something from this lesson for our current economics. Because we have surpluses today since the time of agriculture, and we have the incentive to grab by force as though that's going in the long run to help me and mine out. It turns out it doesn't work so well that way. This is not an argument against private property. It's an argument for thinking about the distribution of resources, physical resources and immaterial resources like access to education. To think about the distribution of these, that it runs fairly equally throughout the community. And by community, again, we have to think of the nearby and proximate community, but also as that community extends out in our global connectedness. To the extent that we do not have reasonably equitable distributions of our resources, we see poverty, 
abandonment, greed, lack of solidarity from the different sectors of society, lack of empathy, sympathy, and a raveling of society, an unraveling of society. We know, we know this from our, uh, our prehistory, and we know it from our societal problems today. So I was talking to econo economists at CTI about how to take our understanding that we are a relational species dependent on each other, those we know and those we don't know personally, and how we can take this understanding um, into concrete economic plans. So as I said, Marcia, this is also an opportunity. This is a special series of the podcast where I'm getting back in touch with CTI scholars who've been at CTI recently, or in some cases uh, years ago, to talk about not only to get in touch and sort of learn more about their work that they've been doing, but also to hear their reflections on the pandemic and how their research might illuminate our thinking about that, but also how this crisis might in some ways be influencing their research. So I'd like to pitch that question to you. I've been thinking a good deal about what lessons are the takeaways from this pandemic. We could learn that we have to scramble as much as we possibly can for our own, be suspicious of others, and try to get um, what we can for ourselves and wall ourselves off from others to protect ourselves from a global pandemic. We could take that as a, as a takeaway. Or we could understand that in our relational cosmos, viruses like ideas and people have a way of getting around. Walling yourself off or setting up a zero-sum competitive situation is not going to lead to our solving the public health crisis or to, for dealing with its economic consequences. For example, when we're searching for a vaccine, there are hundreds of labs all over the world that are searching for a, a vaccine. But there also needs to be, and there is, a lot of shared information among scientists to try to get that vaccine as uh, moving forward as quickly as possible. Maybe just as a last question, that's very interesting, Marcia. Talk to you about, given this relational theology that you've laid out, how do we think about social distancing as both a social norm that we need to foster during this crisis, but also recognizing that given our relational nature, it's somehow deeply well, how, what would you say about it, given our relational nature? Yeah, thanks for that. An excellent point. So the, the stresses that um, the shutdowns of various severities were causing is a kind of witness to um, how very relational we are as a species. And when we are forced into isolation, uh, we, we feel it's harm to us psychologically, often even physically, you start to have physical manifestations of the stress. But there's another side to it as well, social distancing, wearing a mask. To do that is to understand that we live in society with others 
and that we have reciprocal responsibility to them as they have to us. To wear a mask, to observe social distancing in a public health crisis with a contagious disease is to understand that when you go out, you can't think only just of yourself. Oh, am I gonna get it? I don't care if I get it, or I'm 25, I'm not gonna get it. But whether one is young or old, when we go out in a public health emergency, we have reciprocal commitments to every single other person in um, our environment. And with the pandemic, the results are immediate. If you have mask wearing and social distancing and a coordinated societal organization of testing and contact tracing, those are all relational activities. And if you have them, the pandemic recedes. And to the extent that you don't, the pandemic remains and the curve flattens much more slowly, more people get sick, more people die. So I think we've had a very strong lesson with the pandemic about uh, the need for relational, societal reciprocity and the consideration of our mutual commitments to each other. This doesn't mean that we aren't individuals, we are, that we don't have singular talents and individual unique value, we all do. But we get to be that way from the worlds in which we live. And so we need to consider those worlds and all the people in them and the environment in order to flourish. And I think we've just gotten a very sharp lesson in that. What do you think it will be like when this is, I don't even know if I can say over, what's the next when thing look like? Yeah, there's, there's been much discussion Will we go back to status quo ante when this is quote over, when we have not only a vaccine, but mass distribution of the max vaccine and something like herd immunity, or will we have learned anything? I think it's a little bit like the question, will policing in the United States go back to status quo ante when the flurry about George Floyd's death and Black Lives Matter dies down. Once again, will we go back to status quo ante? Uh, not only with policing, but with all the antecedent factors um, of prejudice, race prejudice, and restricted opportunities of all kinds for people of color in this country. I'm apt to think that we, we will not go back to status quo ante. There will be many changes, some of them productive and some of them unproductive. There may be too many Zoom meetings. Um, I think from my understanding of cultural history, I, that's, I'm, a, I'm in multicultural studies. I look at cultural history. Cultures change, but they change slowly. And for many of us, they change far too slowly, but cultures change slowly. So we can look back at the Rodney King, for example, uh, the Rodney King tragedy in 1992 and say, did anything change? Yes, absolutely things have changed. Some things have changed. 
in, for African Americans um, in a very productive ways. But cultures change slowly. So many things have also not changed and we have a very long way to go. I think say a similar trajectory might occur with the lessons of the, of the coronavirus pandemic. I think certain things will be learned. For example, about healthcare, the importance of uh, good distribution of proper health insurance and healthcare for everybody and the ability to coordinate that for public health, not profit, which does not mean that nobody makes a living, that doctors and nurses don't make a living, or that even pharmaceutical companies and medical um, development uh, corporations don't make a living. Of course they do. But within, my vision would be, but within the understanding that we all live in society to get together and that the profit of any one person or firm is not the be all and end all. Profits, economics occur within societal norms and values like public health, educational opportunity, job opportunity, job retraining opportunities. Since our technology is changing so fast, we must uh, retrain several times in our lives. All of these opportunities are societal values and economics has to work within them with being guided by the principles of what kind of species we are and by our societal values and what kind of society we want to have. Um, and oddly enough, Adam Smith, the supposed guru of greed, understood this very well, both in uh, theory of moral sentiments and in the wealth of nations. He understood that markets work very, very well, embedded in societal values and norms like honesty, promise keeping, not trying to run your competitors into the ground. You need a market, not trying to run your suppliers into the ground. You need well-functioning supply chains and so that they can make a living too and their workers can make enough to go out and participate in the market. He understand that markets work within a societal values and need to be governed by societal values. And I think that's hopefully one of the lessons that we will learn at least about healthcare from the pandemic. Well, I'd, I'd like to end on that hopeful note, Marcia. Thanks so much for being on the podcast today, for talking about your work, catching up, and for reflecting on this current crisis and indeed a, a, the dual crisis that we're in at this time in this country and uh, around the world. Thanks for being on the podcast, Marcia. It's a pleasure. Good to speak with you.